This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Minute Earth, The Majority Report, The David Pakman Show, Comedian Lee Camp, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Young Turks, The Media Matters Minute, The Green News Report, Activism from the Unfuck It Up Project, and The Tom Hartman Program. Hello, fellow scientists. Thanks to your active collaboration, our study, the world's largest uncontrolled experiment, crossed a historic milestone on May 9, 2013. Ahead of schedule, the concentration of carbon dioxide gas in the Earth's atmosphere has reached 400 parts per million. This is a big change from 100 years ago when the concentration was just 300 parts per million, below which it had stayed for more than 800,000 years. We've used the most effective methods to increase the levels of CO2 in our atmosphere, burning coal, oil, and natural gas, chopping down forests, and surprisingly, making cement. In some respects, 400 ppm is just an arbitrary figure, an attractively round number like the 4-minute mile or the 7 billion mark for world population. But it indicates that we've reached a new phase of our experiment. Each day forward, we go deeper into territory uncharted in human history. After 400 ppm, who knows what'll happen? Actually, our preliminary results give us a pretty good idea. We've seen more and bigger floods, fires, droughts, and storms, melting ice caps, and rising sea levels. You may already have experienced some of these yourself, and you can expect more in the future. Please publicize our experiment and tell your friends, family, and politicians how important their contributions have been. After all, it's people like you and me and major corporations, with access to cars, air conditioning, supermarkets, and so on, who are responsible for the large majority of today's greenhouse gas emissions. This global experiment can't continue without your participation. So remember, the next time you let your car idle, leave the AC on when you're not home, or forget to eat the food you bought, you're part of something big. Research by David C. Baker of the University of Pittsburgh. <laughs> David H. Pierce of the University of Colorado. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Uncovered that belief in biblical end times was a motivating factor behind resistance to curbing climate change. From Political Science Quarterly. The fact that such an overwhelming percentage of Republican citizens profess a belief in the second coming... 76% in 2006 suggests that governmental attempts to curb greenhouse emissions would encounter stiff resistance even if every Democrat in the country wanted to curb them. The study is based on data from the 2007 Cooperative <laughs> Congressional Election Study uncovered that the belief in the second coming of Jesus reduced the probability, uh, probability of strongly supporting government action on climate change by 12% when controlling for a number of demographic and cultural factors. When the effects of party affiliation, political ideology, and media distrust were removed from the analysis, the belief in the second coming increased this effect by almost 20%. And we have seen countless... Um, 
Republican congressmen state this stuff. Shimkus the other day, or Shimkus in 2010, said he opposed uh, action on climate change because the earth will end only when God declares it to be over. And then we had somebody the other day talk about, uh, I can't remember who it was now, talking about Noah, right? Oh, yeah. We've had these before. Hello, the flood. I can't remember who it was. Wasn't that a Burton? Was it? Oh, Smokey Joe Barton. Barton. Yes. Smokey Joe Barton. Barton. Who's the Republican chair of the Energy Commission? So uh, there you have it, folks. But as um, I don't see anything wrong with that, Sam. God gives me the energy. As was mentioned in um, uh, Bitter Seventy, that uh, film we interviewed the filmmakers today. Martin Luther King said you only need 5% of the people. So it's clearly off the table that we're going to get some of these uh, fundamentalists to care about uh, global warming because it's all in God's hands. Now, of course, abortion isn't. Uh, that's when we should elect uh, nut jobs. And tax cutting, that's not in God's hands. God's like, I got the planet and ecosystems Yo, covered. Back off. All right? I got the environment. You guys handle uh, just the... Uh, more social Darwinism aspects. <laughs> I got the rest come. Our secret code words. Who gives a shit? The funny thing is, you know, that ain't gonna happen. We're on a fast cruise, heading to the bottom, but we're having one hell of a time. We're part of the crowd. Hey, one more time. Big drop in solar power prices, and hopefully it will make alternative energy no longer alternative. There's an article in The Economist which talks about the price of photo, uh, the cost of photovoltaic voltaic cells per watt that they generate. Right now, in 1977, it would cost seven, a little over 76 dollars per watt to produce photovoltaic cells. In 1997, it had dropped to about five dollars per watt. And the forecast for the end of this year is only 74 cents per watt. Wind farms provide about 2% of the world's electricity, and their, their capacity is doubling every three years. And we really have the opportunity to see huge growth in solar power. And the, the fascinating thing here is there's two ways to get more efficiency. One way is reduce the cost for the cells such that the collection of one watt goes down. But then there's also allow the cells to harness a higher percentage of the sun's energy, which is where we've talked about being stuck with solar power for a while, which is you can, you can only use a fraction of the sun's energy. It's wasteful in that sense. If you start adjusting both sides of the equation, we're going to have some pretty efficient ways of using solar power soon. Right. And this is basically how it works with all technology, right? It gets cheaper. It gets smaller. It gets um, Is it Moore's more law that addresses uh, CPU processing power? Yeah. Uh, I guess, yeah. yeah. Moore's Law. In any case, exciting stuff happening with solar power. Show me sunshine. Show me good times. Show me happy days. Show me better ways.
your moment of clarity, coming to you today from Edinburgh, Scotland. So you've probably heard the people talking about global warming also mention how to boil a frog. The story goes that if you drop a frog into boiling water, he will immediately jump out because he'll think, holy f God, it's hot in here. But if you put a frog in room temperature water and then slowly bring it to a boil, the frog won't jump out because he'll just think there's something wrong with the thermostat and then he'll busy himself writing strongly worded letters to the hotel manager demanding a room with a more reasonable heating system. He'll keep doing that until he's a fried frog. Well, besides being an indictment of the intelligence of frogs, it's meant to make us ask ourselves, are we the frog? And maybe one day aliens far, far away will use us as their example of gradual, horrible change being ignored simply because it's gradual. They'll go, how do you boil a human? Well, you slowly heat up their planet, and even though it's them causing it, they won't care enough to do anything about it. The other day, for the first time in three million years, our planet passed 400 parts per million for carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Many scientists believe 350 parts per million is the maximum level for a truly safe and stable planet. But we left that number in the dust. 350 can eat our wake. Scoreboard, scoreboard, overrated. <laughs> Over. But people don't stop to think about all the positives of ignoring climate change. In only a few years, there could be affordable beachside property in Ohio. Not to mention affordable beachside melanoma and halitosis. You used to live on farmland, now you live on a water park. How cool is that? No, but seriously, the reason there's so much supposed debate on climate change, and I don't mean debate among scientists, there's essentially no debate there, but the debate among others is because there are several types of people who either want global warming or don't mind it. First of all, you have the evangelicals who believe it's all in God's plan. Apparently, God's plan includes killing tons of people with floods, droughts, and famine, and making the planet uninhabitable. And why would he do that? Gay people. Gay people always f it up. There is nothing God hates more than a well choreographed dance number. Seriously, gay people, why do you have to f up the entire planet for everyone? Next, you have Alex Jones's people who think a conspiracy is behind global warming and scientists somehow manufactured the 400 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere so that the corporate elite could make money from carbon trading. Yes, that's right. The same people who make trillions of dollars from everything oil are now tricking you to stop you from using oil so they can make a much, much smaller amount of money. It's like me betting you $5. I won't tear up my own $20 bill. And then I do it. You give me the $5 and I go, so wheat, look who's $5 richer. The truth is, Alex Jones needs a conspiracy once a week or else people turn off his fact-free program. So this week, what do you know? He has a conspiracy to tell you about. This is my only question for Alex Jones and his fans. When was the last time someone just actually died and wasn't assassinated? Never? Really? No one's ever died? Then there's one final group that love global warming, the corporate plutocrats, who don't mind global warming so much because A, they make insane amounts of money from us burning oil, and B, they want the oil underneath the Arctic. So they love that the Arctic is melting. They don't give a f about a penguin. I know, penguins don't live in the Arctic, but still, you gotta admit, they don't give a f about a penguin. Note to self, purchase website 
they don't give a f about a penguin.com. I have to admit, it's nice to see the idiots and the douchebags coming together on something. They really have put their differences aside to go forward hand in hand in opposition of what every scientist is saying. The truth is the debate is over, and we're passing one horrible milestone after another while we sit here arguing an inarguable debate. I would say the debate is moot, but I looked up the word moot in the dictionary, and the definition is, number one, arguable, as in this debate is moot, and number two, inarguable, as in in this debate is moot. So it's high time we took the word moot out to the shed and beat the shit out of it. It's, it's, it's having an identity crisis, and we don't have time for our words to go off soul-searching. So if you think about it, if you put a human in a boiling pot of water, he would jump out. If you put him in room-temperature water and then bring it to a boil, he would probably still jump out. But if you put him in room temperature water with three other humans, and while the water slowly came to a boil, the three others told him reasons, he should think that either the water is not getting hotter, or that God wants it to get hotter, then the human will stand there until he dies a horrible death, and takes the frogs with him. Why are there so many songs about rainbows? And what's on the other side? Hey, this is Lee Camp. I hope you've enjoyed having my Moment of Clarity rants pumped into your skulls. If you have, you would almost definitely love my free Moment of Clarity backstage podcast, where I discuss the topics of the day. You know, the little things, like the corporate raping and pillaging of our world. I also have on fun, awesome guests like this lady. My name is Janine Garofalo. This guy. Hi, I'm John Oliver. And even sometimes this guy. This is Greg Palace, and I've got my zipper caught in moments of clarity. Free at LeeCamp.net, iTunes, Stitcher, or the Android app. Plus, there's a Moment of Clarity book for those of you who thought, I love Moment of Clarity, but I hate how I can't lick it. Well, now you can. The Moment of Clarity book and ebook, get it at LeeCamp.net or on most e reader platforms. And remember, keep fighting and stay angry. Somebody thought of that, and someone believed it. Map time! Uh, this is Canada. Canada is enormous. Canada is the second largest country in the world by area. Its provinces and territories stretch from the Yukon Territory and British Columbia in the west, all the way to Labrador and Newfoundland in the east. And the eastern parts of Canada are way further east than you think they are. There is a whole time zone in Canada that is an hour further east than the time zone on the U.S. east coast. And then beyond that, there's another one that's even further east for Newfoundland alone. And that's one of those weird half-hour time zones. Canada is huge. But the Canadian province that sits roughly on top of the state of Montana is the Canadian province of Alberta. And earlier this month, just outside a place called Zama City in northern Alberta, there was a plane full of oil company officials flying over that part of the province, and they noticed that there was something wrong. They noticed that an oil pipeline had burst, even though nobody had heard anything about it. An Alberta oil pipeline that was being operated by a Texas company called Apache was just leaking all over the place. The spill was first noticed that day by company officials flying, so they noticed it from the air. They, in turn, notified the government of Alberta. But something weird happened after they notified the government of Alberta. Nobody said anything. 
The company and the government just kept quiet about the whole thing for days and days and days and days and days. The spill was first spotted from the air on June 1st. It was not until 11 days later, on June 12th, that the government finally said anything publicly about the fact that it had happened. Some local residents actually learned about the spill before the government announcement, quote, after somebody reported it to a local TV station. But the rest of the public was essentially left in the dark. Asked why they kept quiet about the whole thing that entire time? An official for the oil company told a local reporter up there, quote, it didn't affect people in general. There wasn't anybody harmed. There wasn't anybody that was directly affected. That uh, is not at all true. Here's what that spill looks like. It's just oil and wastewater and toxic goo everywhere, right? As you can tell, this is a heavily wooded area. This is actually an environmentally sensitive wetlands region that a local Indian tribe relies on for hunting and trapping and their basic survival. A chief for that tribe told the local paper that every plant and tree died in the area that was touched by the spill. The newspaper describes it this way. Across a broad expanse of northern Alberta, the landscape is dead. This spill, which the oil company and the local government decided to not inform the general public about for 11 days after they knew about it, Turns out to be giant. Turns out to be one of the largest spills of its kind in recent history. It covers an area of more than 100 acres. Nine and a half million liters of this toxic goo has been released. And even though the oil company has insisted publicly that that what was spilled was not actually that harmful. They say it's mostly just salt water. Trust us. The images that have been released by those who actually live in the area seem to show a heck of a lot more oil mixed in with all that supposed fresh, clean salt water that was spewing out of the pipeline. In response to this spill, there was a lot of initial questioning about whether enough was being done to maintain the aging oil infrastructure in that area, whether all these old pipelines were meeting the necessary safety standards, whether more should be done, whether more should be invested for safety's sake in replacing all the old stuff. And that worry is why it freaked everybody out so much when they realized that this big disaster in Alberta was not because of the old stuff. The pipeline that failed and that took those hundred acres with it when it failed, that pipeline was only five years old. It was a five-year-old pipeline designed to last for 30 years. It didn't even make it one-sixth of the way through its expected lifespan. A spokesman for the oil company said it was, quote, kind of puzzling as to why the pipeline leaked. Hmm, we have no idea. I wonder why that happened. Pipeline spills have become a fairly common thing in North America, not just in Canada, but here as well. There was, of course, the big Exxon pipeline spill that took place earlier this year in Mayflower, Arkansas. That was actually an aging pipeline. None of the area residents in the area knew their houses were on top of a pipeline, but it was there. That burst pipeline that sent oil flowing through the streets like a wave. That pipeline that burst in Arkansas was nearly 65 years old. There was also the giant Yellowstone River oil spill in Montana, July 2011. That was also an Exxon pipeline. That one fouled one of Montana's legendary natural assets. Then there was the Enbridge oil spill right near the Kalamazoo River in Michigan in 2010. That one has taken years to clean up. Cleanup costs are up to a billion dollars and counting so far, in part because that's Alberta tar sands oil, and nobody really knows how to clean up Alberta tar sands oil. But up in Alberta, up in the oil fields up there, it's the Red Deer River, a major source of drinking water for the province, that the oil spills have been fouling lately. 
Oil spills have been fouling a lot up there for a long time. The network of oil infrastructure and pipelines through Alberta have had an average of two crude oil spills of some kind or another every single day for the past 37 years. Two spills a day. And it is easy to conclude that that's Canada's problem to deal with, right? But President Obama right now has to decide whether that is going to be our problem too. President Obama personally has to make a decision very soon about whether or not to approve construction of the Keystone XL pipeline that will carry oil from Alberta, Canada, all the way through the United States from our northern border to the Gulf of Mexico. That project requires a presidential permit in order to go forward because that pipeline crosses the international border with Canada. The company that's trying to get that presidential approval to build the pipeline is a company called TransCanada. TransCanada's public pitch about why President Obama should approve their permit immediately is all about how safe this pipeline's going to be. Uh, we can build a safe pipeline. This will be the safest pipeline that, uh, uh, that has ever been built in the United States. Uh, and, uh, and, and I don't think that the, the process needs to take this long. This will be the safest pipeline that has ever been built. That was the CEO of TransCanada. They're going to make this as safe as houses, right? This week, uh, we learned maybe not. TransCanada has reportedly decided to reject the latest, most state-of-the-art technology that is out there for catching oil leaks in pipelines. There is a system out there of infrared sensors and fiber optic cables that are laid outside the pipeline in order to detect a spill as soon as it happens. That system exists. That sort of technology, in fact, has officially been recommended by the U.S. government for this particular pipeline project. But TransCanada says, actually, we're good. You know, we're not going to do that. They say employing that sort of technology would be impractical for this project. So they're just not going to do it. Yes, they said they would be the, you know, safest pipeline ever, but not that safe. The spill detection systems that they are planning on using have what's called a spotty record of catching leaks, according to the U.S. Department of Transportation. But TransCanada is apparently just going to go with the spotty record stuff anyway, instead of the state-of-the-art stuff. That sort of attitude toward safety on this project is part of why there is so much political consternation and attention and protest when it comes to this one particular pipeline. And, you know, honestly, this would not be the only pipeline in the United States. It's not like we don't have others. We've already got more than 19 million gallons of oil moving around the country by that means every single day. But this project and a few others like it w would add another 5 million gallons a day to what we've got already, which would be a big increase. There's also consternation here because this pipeline is huge. It crosses the whole country. It essentially cuts the entire country in half. And in so doing, it runs through a lot of really important, very large sources of American drinking water and groundwater, which has caused concerns even among pro-oil Republican governors and legislators who find their jurisdictions to be along the planned route. Honestly, the other reason this is such a hot-button political issue is the fact of who gets to make the decision. Because it crosses an international boundary, this is on President Obama personally to make the decision. It is his thumbs up or his thumbs down as to whether or not we can bear the risk of this thing as a country. So the fact that this company is not even trying to lower the risk as much as they could, that does ratchet up the pressure even further in terms of whether or not the, pressure, uh, the president is going to approve this thing. As does the president's own insistence on keeping the issue of the environment and climate change at the top of his agenda, on the list of things that he says he wants to do something about in his second term. He keeps saying that over and over again in all of these high-profile speeches, even with Congress saying they have no interest at all in helping him work on it. Today was just the latest instance of President Obama doing that. 
The president traveled to the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin to give a speech. He stood under the broiling hot sun, wiping sweat off his brow. He had a broken teleprompter, forced him to read his speech off a of paper. The president said at the Brandenburg Gate, we must confront the crisis of climate change before it is too late. The grim alternative affects all nations. More severe storms, more famine and floods, new waves of refugees, coastlines that vanish, oceans that rise. This is the future we must avert. This is the global threat of our time. The global threat of our time. That was today in Germany. But it echoes exactly what the president said in the longest treatment of any policy issue uh, in his inaugural address earlier this year when he said, we will respond to the threat of climate change knowing that the failure to do so would betray our children and future generations. Some may still deny the overwhelming judgment of science, but none can avoid the devastating impact of raging fires and crippling drought and more powerful storms. America cannot resist this transition, he said. We must lead it. The president followed up those strong words with even more talk about climate change during his State of the Union address, which was a few weeks later. But from that, we have one very interesting political point. So the president is very publicly urging action on this issue, saying that we've got to do something on this. But behind closed doors, he has apparently been telling sort of a different story. He has been apparently acknowledging the very real political dangers in choosing to act on this issue. This is according to reporting from the Washington Post. They say that during a recent private fundraiser in California, quote, President Obama expressed concerns about the political pain involved, saying that dial testing of his State of the Union speech showed that the favorability ratings plummeted when he vowed to act on climate change if Congress refused to do so. So, interesting that dial testing would show people not liking the idea of the president saying he would act on this if Congress didn't. But even more interesting, that President Obama is telling his donors that at fundraisers when he's explaining to them what's going to happen in the second term. So behind closed doors, President Obama acknowledging that acting alone on this issue, because Congress won't, carries with it a certain amount of political risk. But acting alone, even with that acknowledged political risk, one that's clearly enough on his mind that he's talking about it in unscripted moments, even with that, it is apparently what he intends to do. Because paired with this speech at the Brandenburg Gate today, the White House now says that as soon as next week, we should expect a major presidential address announcing new policy on the issue of climate change. None of these new policy efforts will require any money from Congress or any legislative action from Congress. This is the president acting on his own. The president, we are told, will be acting directly, despite what he was telling everybody privately about his worries about the dial testing. President Obama gave an important speech at Georgetown University today where he talked about climate change and he uh, wound up setting some new rules that he can carry out in the executive branch without the need for Congress. So this is important. He wants to restrict carbon pollution at 
not just new power plants, but also existing power plants. That's a big change from the past. Now, President Obama has wanted to institute these new rules on new power plants since the beginning. Now, understand it takes a long time to implement. He's been in office for over four years, nearly five years now, and what's happened? No implementation yet. So it's a good start, but they got to hurry on the implementation. I'll get back to that. He also said there's going to be new wind, solar, and other renewable energy projects on federal lands, and that we will step, take aggressive steps to make sure that we increase efficiency on appliances. But I want to let you hear from the president himself uh, first on the new pollution standards. I'm directing the Environmental Protection Agency to put an end to the limitless dumping of carbon pollution from our power plants and complete new pollution standards for both new and existing power plants. Now, that's really good, as I said, emphasizing not just the new ones, but the existing ones. And God, he's going to get a huge fight over that, right? All the existing power plants are going to say, this is outrageous, it's going to cost us so much money. In fact, let me skip down here to video 16 here. here. Mitch McConnell immediately jumps into it. Here's the leader of the Republicans in the Senate. Declaring a war on coal is tantamount to declaring a war on jobs. It's tantamount to kicking the ladder out from beneath the feet of many Americans struggling in today's economy. Of course he's going to go in that direction. Oh, during the campaign, President Obama was like, I love coal, I shower with coal, coal is so clean. And he's been saying for the last four and a half years, and we can go back to his campaign five years, longer than that, right? And nonetheless, the minute he says, hey, maybe we shouldn't have so much carbon pollution, ah, he hates coal, it's a war on coal. So this is important that Obama's heading in the right direction here, and it's a welcome relief. And to give you a sense of how important it is and significant, uh, Melinda Pierce from the Sierra Club says, quote, This is the holy grail. That is the single biggest step, referring to the power plant rules, he can take to help tackle carbon pollution. So now these are the experts in the field, and they're saying this is legitimate and this is a real step. Now, we're going to get into the but right now. Now, he releases this first, because he's going to have to take action on Keystone soon. If he approves a Keystone XL pipeline, what's he going to say? He's going to say, oh, no, look at all the things I just put into motion there. No, 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 it all bounces out. In fact, he addressed Keystone XL pipeline here. Now listen carefully to the words. But I do want to be clear. Allowing the Keystone pipeline to be built requires a finding that doing so would be in our nation's interest. And our national interest will be served only if this project does not significantly exacerbate the problem of carbon pollution. The net effects of the pipeline's impact the net effects of the pipeline's impact on our climate will be absolutely cr critical to determining whether this project is allowed to go forward. It's relevant. So that's brilliant because every headline now says Oh, President Obama says if it's, you know, uh, adds to the net carbon in the world, he's not going to approve the Keystone XL pipeline. First of all, who are we kidding? Does it add to the net carbon? Of course! It's not even close. Of course it adds. So what's the question? No, no, no. It's all in the framing. He said, well, you know, if it, if you look at the totality of it and given the options, if it adds, then we're going to vote no, right? And the Washington Post explains. 
Well, one of the other options is bringing in from Alberta through the trains. Well, then you would be bringing in the tar sands anyway, and you would be using the trains to do it, so that would actually add more carbon pollution to the air, so that Obama can turn around and go, you see, I'm taking the less carbon pollution uh, uh, process, just like I told you in that speech. I never lied to you. I said I'm going to weigh the options and then find out which way I'm going to go. Write it down in stone. Write it down in keystone, if you like. He's approving the pipeline. <laughs> I've seen this movie a hundred times. He'll say, well, look, I weighed all the options, just like I told you in that speech. And he'll say, and remember the carbon rules on the new and existing plants and how important that was. Now here comes the but on that one. Well, it turns out that the implementation won't even begin until June 2014. That's when the EPA can say, all right, the rule on the existing power plants can begin. But it doesn't even begin then. After they say, okay, now go forward, it takes a whole nother year to finalize it. That would bring you to June of 2015, when President Obama is very close to leaving office. In fact, when uh, they heard about that and understood it, American Electric Power's president and CEO, Nick Aiken, said positively for him, quote, so, the devil's still in the details. In other words, don't get too excited yet. We still might have won this thing. All right. So, look, I, I don't want to be overly skeptical. It is a good speech, and the new rules are important, and he doesn't need Congress for them. So that's positive. And he talked about it in a, in a good way. Now, look, we got to quick. Let's go. Let's go. Quick o'clock, as the Jamaicans would say. We got to go. So if we're beginning the process, we hope in June of 2015, on some of these issues... <laughs> the planet is melting, right? But nonetheless, the right path and the right words. Speaking of the right words, he also said this. Nobody has a monopoly on what is a very hard problem. But I don't have much patience for anyone who denies that this challenge is real. We don't have time for a meeting of the Flat Earth Society. <laughs> Sticking your head in the sand might make you feel safer. But it's not going to protect you from the coming storm. And ultimately, we will be judged as a people and as a society and as a country on where we go from here. He's right, of course. The storm is coming. Now, look, it, it's a good thing to say. It's good to say the 97% of, of scientists agree that it's man-made uh, climate warming uh, and, and, I'm sorry, global warming. And, and if you don't believe that, you're a flat earth guy, right? Uh, on the other hand, it's also easy because you say, ah, oh, you see, oh, the Republicans, they would have been worse. They would have been worse. I haven't done much, but the Republicans would have been much worse. And look, part of that is absolutely true. Would Mitt Romney have given that speech? Oh, hell no. He would have given a speech about how, uh, you know, more carbon in the air is actually awesome. And that we should drill, baby, drill, right? Now, one final funny note here. <laughs> the Flat Earth Society's president, Daniel Shenton, heard the speech and he decided to make a comment about it. Here's what he said. For what it's worth... The Flat Earth Society doesn't have an official position on climate change. He went on to say, personally though, I believe the evidence available does support the position that climate change is at least partially influenced by human industrialization. So even the Flat Earth Society believes climate change is real. The only people left are Republicans. Flat 
This program can only do what it does because of the members who support the show for as little as $5 a month. And as thanks for the support, members now get access to bonus content, including additional voicemails and clips that didn't fit in the big show, and additional stories and discussion topics from me. Plus, I've organized a full archive of the show, including a curated selection of my favorite past episodes, as well as a collection of my absolute favorite radio clips from all sorts of places. All that now available only to members. If you're already a member and want access to all this great content, drop me an email at j at bestoftheleft.com so I can get you set up. And if you're not yet a member, you can sign up now at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. Huge address by President Obama this afternoon. Yes, it was an historic speech at Georgetown University on Tuesday. President Obama launched his second term agenda on climate change, making the moral and economic case for climate action. He'll use mostly executive powers to do that that don't require congressional action for the most part. He opened with the economic costs of climate impacts that are already occurring. Americans across the country are already paying the price of inaction. So the question now is whether we will have the courage to act before it's too late. President Obama focused then on the economic opportunities in innovation to address climate change. His plan focuses on three fronts, cutting emissions, bracing for climate impacts, and leading international action. Now, the first initiative to cut emissions is a big deal, to establish the first-ever standards for power plant emissions. These are required by law, and he noted power plants have enjoyed a free ride on your dime. Power plants can still dump unlimited amounts of carbon pollution into the air for free. That's not right, that's not safe, and it needs to stop. Today, for the sake of our children and the health and safety of all Americans, I'm directing the Environmental Protection Agency to put an end to the limitless dumping of carbon pollution from our power plants and complete new pollution standards for both new and existing power plants. Now the coal industry and other major polluting industries are going to sue. They'll cost us several years of action trying to stop these changes in the courts. But the writing is on the wall. On Monday, in advance of his speech, coal company stocks took a dive as reality apparently just now dawned on investors. And now all of these executive actions he's calling for are actually mandated, are they not, by the law, by the uh, Supreme Court, who said and that action has to be taken here? by the Clean Air Act as well. As part of the plan to reduce emissions, the president will also increase energy efficiency standards for appliances, renewable energy development on public lands. The federal government will get 20% of its energy from renewable sources by 2020, and the military is going to build and test renewable energy innovation, all of which will spark economic growth. A low-carbon, clean energy economy can be an engine of growth for decades to come. Obama was also bullish on natural gas, as he called it, a transition fuel to power the economy while we wait for cleaner energy sources to be deployed. That's a fracking transition fuel. Right. The problem now is regulation of fracking, which is still up for grabs. Obama also hit on the controversial Keystone XL pipeline from Canada. National interest will be served. Only if this project does not significantly exacerbate the problem of carbon pollution. 
A little bit of wiggle room there. What's the definition of significantly? Indeed, and I know a lot of the environmentalists were kind of excited when word leaked out uh, just before the speech that he was going to withhold approval of the pipeline if it was shown that there was going to be significant increases in carbon. Now some people are saying, well, he might refer to the State Department report, which showed that, uh, well, it won't have that significant an effect on the environment. So after cutting emissions, the second part of his agenda is to brace for impact, preparing the infrastructure of the nation for resistance resilience against the impacts we're already seeing from extreme weather and those that are to come. More fires, more droughts, floods, and higher sea levels. Those, however, will require Congress to approve spending. His third major component, leading international action. Ending U.S. financing of new overseas coal-fired power plants in developing countries. Signing clean energy free trade agreements to help developing nations skip over the pollution phase of development. And signing the U.N.'s upcoming climate treaty. That's due in 2016 and will fall to whoever is president and in the Senate in 2016. Which is why Obama called on all of us who understand climate science to speak up and vote. Push back on misinformation. Speak up for the facts. And remind everyone who represents you at every level of government that sheltering future generations against the ravages of climate change is a prerequisite for your vote. Make yourself heard on this issue. Is this more great words from Obama and that won't be followed by action? That remains to be seen. That is the question we will be watching in the weeks and months ahead. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Tyler Hansen. Media outlets are reacting to the details of President Obama's new plan to address climate change by pushing the conservative narrative that the administration intends to bypass Congress. Here's business analyst Diane Macedo on Fox & Friends First. Sources say the president will also announce more aggressive steps to increase efficiency for home appliances and pledge to massively increase the production of renewable energy on public lands and on low-income housing sites. And keep in mind, none of these steps require congressional approval. So this is also being seen as a sign that the president saying he's done waiting for the lawmakers to act on climate change and instead will seek ways to work around them. The Hill, Politico, and NBCNews.com have also recently echoed this claim. However, not one of these outlets explained that the Supreme Court explicitly gave the executive branch the power to regulate carbon emissions under the Clean Air Act. The court even ordered direct action if greenhouse emissions were found to be harmful to human health. Today's activism segment comes to you, as always, in partnership with the Unfuck It Up Project, where creator Katie Goodman and director Katie Klebusik encourage involvement over apathy by highlighting people and organizations that are doing good for their communities and the world. Today's campaign, Beat the Heat. President Obama's climate speech has understandably garnered a lot of attention, some positive, some negative. No matter how you personally felt about the issues raised, phrases used, or policies promised, history has made it clear we cannot wait for the executive branch to act. 350.org, the premier climate organization run by Bill McKibben, has launched a trio of campaigns to put the brakes on climate change already underway and to mitigate the damage to our planet and ourselves. The 350.org homepage features links to each with information on how they're working in tandem in cities across the country. The first campaign, summer heat. Quote, as the temperature rises, so do we. 350.org has its sights set on beating the heat this summer. What better time than when Americans are literally feeling it to invite otherwise complacent citizens to act? 
Rallies, marches, and demonstrations are being added to the calendar every day in a coordinated effort to, quote, take on the fossil fuel industry on all fronts. People from Oregon to Texas to Maine are challenging the fossil fuel infrastructure embedded in their communities. 350.org's website has a map of scheduled actions, assistance for planning your own, and help with the logistics of civil disobedience. The second campaign, the Fossil Free Campaign, is focused on securing commitments from our nation's cities and universities to divest from the 200 publicly traded companies holding the majority of the world's coal, oil, and gas reserves. This campaign is already working. Cities in California, Washington State, New Mexico, Wisconsin, and others have pledged to divest along with a number of religious organizations and universities. You can join efforts already in progress or utilize Fossil Free's resources to start your own. And the third campaign, Stop Keystone XL, in conjunction with Credo Action, is asking activists to pledge their resistance to unleash the carbon held in the Canadian tar sands. Join the more than 65,000 people who have already committed to take action on stopping a project that NASA scientist James Hansen says, quote, will be game over for the climate. Links to today's actions will be in the show notes in all the usual places. Additional activism opportunities can be found at facebook.com slash best of the left. If you know of or better yet are planning an action, you can share it there for possible use on the show. Help unfuck it up. And then say, are you really so fucking busy? You can't take one fucking minute to help unfuck it up. Because I'm willing to pick one thing to help unfuck it up. Won't you join me? Just yesterday, uh, President Obama announced a fairly ambitious new attempt to fight against global climate change, including such things as capping carbon emissions, not just at new power plants, but at existing power plants as well. Improving some of the efficiency standards in automobiles, which is something that he has a pretty good track record already in. Uh, doubling the amount of electricity produced with renewables, which is ambitious. I hope that it's successful. Uh, and also leading a global movement to address climate change. Uh, I think that we should possibly catch up to some other countries before we hope to lead them. But anyway, he gave this speech, which lasted 49 minutes. Are you curious how much coverage the actual speech actually got on the major news networks? We've got a cool little info infographic for you. So you see there the Weather Channel, which knows a little something about global climate change, covered the entire 49 minutes. CNN, good job, guys, 8 minutes and 5 seconds. Fox News showed basically his intro. And MSNBC, who half their staff now are people who used to work for Barack Obama, covered 41 seconds. It's possible somebody accidentally clicked over to his speech and just didn't respond quick enough to get off of it. 41 seconds from the liberal news network? That is shameful. Um, but that's not to say that they didn't talk about the speech. Fox News, in particular, used it, as they will in every case, as a tool to beat Barack Obama over the head with. So they cut away after just a couple of minutes. You saw there about four and a half minutes or so. Megyn Kelly cut to climate denier Chris Horner of the Competitive Enterprise Institute, which has uh, financial ties to the fossil fuel industry. And she said, the planet is warming and human activity is contributing to it. That's Obama's thing, is not the full story. Also, uh, let's see, we've got on special report, Fox contributor Stephen Hayes responded by perpetuating this myth that back in the 1970s, there was scientific consensus that there was global cooling. That is, of course, of course a myth. And it's the, the idea that 
if the science was wrong in the past, it can't possibly be right in the future. I mean, yes, some people believe today that the Earth goes around the sun, but a couple of hundred years ago, they believed that the sun went around the Earth. So who's to say? Um, that kind of stupidity brought to you by Fox News. On The Five, co-host Greg Gutfeld said climate skeptics were right all along and said Obama was denying science in his climate speech. There he must be referring to one of the two or three scientific studies published in the last ten years that denied a human-centered climate change. And finally, on Hannity, uh, Liz Cheney, who is a Fox contributor, said that Obama was using phony science to kill jobs and that the science is just bogus. I never really know entirely why they believe that Obama's number one priority is killing jobs. It seems like that would possibly hurt his uh, job approval numbers, maybe hurt the next Democrat who runs for office. Anyway, it is shameful that Fox News used the speech only to attack him and that the other major news networks barely covered it at all. This is a very important uh, issue. We recently saw, I think just yesterday, a report that Miami in the next hundred years will be entirely underwater. Uh, I've never been to Miami, so hope I, apparently I have to rush. Um, this is an important issue. I'm glad that Barack Obama is doing something on it. Uh, I don't like that it will probably include eventually passing the Keystone XL pipeline. But at least he's making some uh, movement on this issue. I just wish that the ma major news networks would recognize that. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal, it will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. You know, we all know that the banksters only care about the bottom line, right? So only the threat of losing massive year-end bonuses could make them freak out, right? And therefore, they shouldn't care about climate change because that has nothing to do with banking, right? Wrong. Banksters are now freaking out about climate change, too, because it's going to hit their bottom lines and hard. Climate change has the potential to devastate economies, and if that happens, banks will be devastated, too. On Wednesday, the president of the World Bank said that the world should stop arguing about whether humans are the cause of climate change and instead start taking action to curb climate change's devastating effects. At a Thomson Reuters newsmaker event in London yesterday, World Bank President Jim Yong Kim said that there was a 97 to 98% agreement in the scientific community that global warming and climate change are real and that they are caused by human activity. Kim went on to say, if you dis disagree with the science of human-caused climate change, you are not disagreeing that there is anthrop anthropogenic climate change. What you are disagreeing with is science itself. Governments across the planet are already doing something about this. Many have agreed to limit global temperature rises to below 2 degrees Celsius, which is three, about 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit, but the banksters at the World Bank are saying, that isn't enough. And they're right. 
Jim Young Kim noted in his speech that as extreme weather events continue to get worse and more prevalent, public opinion about climate change should start to change. Referring to the United States, Kim said that, quote, as extreme weather events occur, such as in the Midwest and Hurricane Sandy, etc., other legislators will come around, end quote. Kim then went on to talk about how China, the, sec- the world's second largest economy, is already taking the issues of global warming and climate change very seriously. In fact, while China is the biggest emitter of carbon dioxide in the world and is still continuing to build dirty coal power plants, they are also investing millions of dollars in solar and wind power more than any other country in the world, especially us. Yeah, this, this should be a good thing. According to Kim, right? This is a positive sign. China's doing this. China's working hard to develop its own national carbon market. And this week, this week, I don't think it has anything to do with their banks freezing up, hopefully. China launched its first emissions trading scheme in the highly industrialized city of Shenzhen. You will recall that back in the late 80s, Maybe it was the early 90s. It was, you know, Bush Sr.'s reign of, of error was from uh, 89 to 92. But, uh, or arguably, you know, January of 93. During that time, he put into place a cap-and-trade program to get rid of acid rain. He capped the amount of sulfur dioxide that power plants could release because it's fairly easily scrubbed out, out of the smokestacks. And then allowed banks to trade and speculate on the on the on the commodity, basically, of these caps of these carbon caps. And within a couple of decades, acid rain is no longer a problem. Cap and trade took care of it. So we've done that before. Yong Kim, the president of the World Bank, said that quote: "If we get China, the U.S., and the EU." to agree on a price for CO2. We'll have a market mechanism to fight climate change. I hope a practical solution will happen before 2020. End of quote. Now, the European Union has had a carbon market in place since 2005. That's what, seven years? Eight years? And China is really working hard to try to set up a carbon emissions trading scheme And like I said, there's one that went into effect this week in Shenzhen, which is one of their largest industrialized cities. It's right across the bay from Hong Kong, all right across the bay in about a, I don't know, about a three-hour drive up. I've been there. Louise and I were there back in the uh, early 80s when Shenzhen was a little town of three, three, well, maybe 5,000 people. And, uh, you know, the one restaurant in town we had lunch at and, and the bathroom was literally a hole in the floor. That was the bathroom. Now it's like this giant industrialized city with a million or more people in it and factories everywhere. And so, so China's doing it. The EU has been doing it since 2005. China started it this week. But here in the United States, we still have crackpots like every single freshman member of the United States House of Representatives who's a Republican saying not only there's nothing to do anything about, but it's, there's, there ain't even so, any such thing. You know, Bill McKibben, back last summer in a Rolling Stone article, pointed out that the fossil fuel industry is the only industry in the United States that doesn't have to pay 
to have its waste disposed of. Think about that. If you're a restaurant owner, you have to pay to have somebody come pick up your leftovers. If you're an office manager, you pay to have somebody recycle all your used papers. If you own a construction company, you pay to have someone haul off the waste materials from a construction site. But with the good old fossil fuel industry, you and I are left to pay the cost of their waste. Their waste, of course, being carbon dioxide. And these costs come in the form of higher food prices, thanks to climate change-driven droughts, and massive cleanup efforts thanks to climate change-driven superstorms like Hurricane Sandy. We don't pay for restaurants to dispose of their trash. So why should we have to pay for big oil to dispose of theirs? I mean, yesterday, senior White House officials said that President Obama is preparing regulations that would limit CO2 emissions from existing power plants. According to the New York Times, if those regulations go through, they would mark, quote, the most consequential climate policy step he could take, end quote. Although I'd say turning down the Keystone XL pipeline is probably the most, well, you know, flip a coin. But in either, in any case, that's, you know, just doing it through the EPA is not enough. America needs a carbon tax. And we need it now. We need some real way of accounting for the real cost to carbon. Is it $30 a ton? Is it $50 a ton? Is it $80 a ton? Is it $100 a ton? A lot of estimates now are suggesting that the actual cost of this carbon dioxide, the cost that you and I are paying, is more like $120 a ton. If we want to have any hope of combating the greatest threat that this planet has ever faced. During his speech in Berlin, Germany yesterday, President Obama spoke to the crowd about climate change. Here he is. The effort to slow climate change requires bold action. And on this, Germany and Europe have led. In the United States, we have recently doubled our renewable energy from clean sources like wind and solar power. We're doubling fuel efficiency on our cars. Our dangerous carbon emissions have come down, but we know we have to do more. And we will do more. With a global middle class consuming more energy every day, this must now be an effort of all nations, not just some. For the grim alternative affects all nations. More severe storms, more famine and floods, new waves of refugees, coastlines that vanish, oceans that rise. This is the future we must avert. This is the global threat of our time. And for the sake of future generations, our generation must move toward a global compact to confront a changing climate before it is too late. That is our job. That is our task. We have to get to work. President Obama's right. Uh, but it's going to take more than a speech. It's time for us to start taking the bold actions needed to stay, save our planet. And that starts right now. from the suburbs of Detroit, and I was listening to Robert's comment regarding white privilege. Hi, Jay. This is Robert in Richmond, Virginia. White privilege is the secular version of original sin. All white people are born guilty. We come into this world with a debt of oppression already on our souls. At least that's the message we're being given. 
While I embrace many progressive values, I cannot and I will not embrace self-hate. And as one who grew up in a Christian in the Christian faith and went through a period of agnosticism until I came home to paganism, I can understand his discomfort with the idea of original sin and how that might be conflated with the idea of white privilege. I think there's a fundamental difference, though. I am a white man, so I am a, a beneficiary of white privilege, but I don't feel that that is something that I should be ashamed of or guilty of. It is just something that is a part of the society in which I live, and as, as such, I benefit from it, but it is incumbent upon me to recognize that and to recognize how others of a lesser, who have less privilege, are hurt by it, and to do what I can to ameliorate that or to reduce it over time. Uh, I think it's also important to recognize how it fits into the overall hierarchical structure of our society, which in turn, unless we're at the very pinnacle, is harming each of us. For someone who is more privileged like myself, it's more subtle than for someone who is less privileged. But the harm is still there and is still real. And if I recognize that, then I can better understand the world and how it works and in that way I can work to make myself a more compassionate, more just and frankly a more successful person. So thank you much. Love what you do. Hi Jay, this is Elka in Fort Wayne and um, I'm calling to respond to the comments by Robert, I guess in Virginia, who called about his objection to you know some of the, the work he's been doing through the show on uh, white privilege, he seems to be confusing white guilt with an understanding of white privilege. And I think he did a pretty good job of, of you know trying to put some clarity to that. At the end of um, one of the more recent episodes, but I just wanted to say to Robert and, and to you know anyone else who may feel like Robert. You know, I, as, as an African-American person, I, as a black woman in this society, am not interested in white people feeling guilty. Guilt from white people doesn't help me at all. Doesn't do a doggone thing for me. What I am more interested in is white responsibility, which includes doing the very, very difficult, challenging, hard work of understanding whiteness, understanding the privilege that whiteness holds, and understanding how power around white privilege works in our society. That's a very different thing from you sitting back and just feeling guilty and feeling bad and feeling sorry for yourself and feeling attacked. No one's trying to attack. I, let me speak for myself, I am not trying to attack white people when I ask white people to be aware of their white privilege. It's not about attacking white people. It's about getting white people to be responsible for understanding that though it may not be their fault, for how they were born, the whiteness they were born into, the privileges they were born into, that may not personally be their fault, but they have a responsibility for understanding how that impacts other people, people of color, LGBTQ people, people with disabilities, anyone on the margins is affected by the fact that we do not fit into the white standards. So that is what I'm more interested in, not Robert's guilt, not anybody else's guilt, but responsibility. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye.
Hey, uh, this is Anthony from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I just got done listening to uh, episode 730, Positive Ideas and Protests for Change, and I gotta say, uh, it's really uh, it's really good to hear some positive things. You know, uh, as a progressive, that's what I consider myself. You see so much bad in the world, you see so much negativity, you know, like slave labor and just politicians screwing up left and right and scandals and all that, and you're always, you know, battling against what seems like this insurmountable wave of just like negativity coming at you but to hear things like you know um, even though things aren't all good at least they're starting to turn in the right direction you actually feel like you have some value to uh, to what you do and to your voice and you know the things that you protest against you know uh, of course Doma was a big win and just you know you see uh, you see other people you see tons of individuals from all over that are trying to make something happen and it is happening and that's just beautiful and great you're not by yourself out here or with your just small little group and you know it's really very encouraging to see people everywhere having you know uh, an impact and to know that you're just not alone it's just wonderful and that's what I took away from the most recent show it's a great job uh, please keep it up I love it and I can't wait for the next one Hey, this is Dave Dunn from Olympia, Washington. I just listened to your 628 episode on uh, positive ideas. Wanted to comment specifically on your uh, voicemail segment at the end. The caller had called in one recent case that the Constitution is a black and white document. It should be just be interpreted on its face, and there's no room for nuance. Hi, Jay. This is Nathan from Vancouver, Washington. Nuance is highly overrated in discussions of constitutional rights. Our government at every level is granted explicit powers that they can do, and that's it. And they're also given prohibitions specifically limiting those powers. And so I have to respectfully disagree with that. In the First Amendment, there's, of course, room for nuance. Speech is not an absolute value. There are times when inciting violence or, you know, when causing harm. There are cases when uh, the First Amendment can be Broached. There's cases when the Second Amendment can be broached. I mean, not everyone should have an inviolate right to the gun. It's interesting that the Fourth Amendment, in and of itself, already consumes, contains nuance. It says unreasonable search and seizure. It doesn't broadly prohibit any search and seizure. It already adds nuance in the language of the amendment. The second thing I wanted to comment on was just to, to echo your ideas on the protests. Uh, the anti-choice protest and the college professor would come and was uh, swearing at the protesters. I agree totally that obscenity is not the standard these things should be judged by. That is so subjective, and it can be interpreted subjectively by the authorities. Uh, the parallel cases, the decency laws that were used to shut down um, pornographic theaters or uh, establishments that would sell material back in, in the day, you know, what, well, what's decent? Well, I know it when I see it. That leaves room open for enforcement based on choices other than the law. So that is exactly the problem in this case. There were two instances of speech, both of which I think were protected. The anti-choice protesters were engaging in a constitutionally protected form of speech. I disagree with them, but I can't argue that they should be prevented from speaking. 
the college professor was engaging in a constitutionally protected form of speech. She was arrested because of the fluidity of obscenity. The college professor was the one whose speech rights were infringed upon. So, as always, stay awesome, and we'll look forward to the next show. Thanks, Jake. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So one last caller for you real quick. Uh, Flavio from Florida called in. Hey, Jay. It's Flavio from Orlando, Florida. And he was actually reporting a story that was played in today's episode. Uh, it was talking about by the Majority Report, talking about the negative correlation between those who believe in end times and those who have a willingness to do anything about climate change. Research by David C. Baker of the University of Pittsburgh. <laughs> David H. Pierce of the University of Colorado. <laughs> yeah, right. Uncovered that belief in biblical end times was a motivating factor behind resistance to curbing climate change. You know, he, he talked for a few minutes of sort of telling the story, but we've already heard that story. So I, I cut that out and I'm going to skip ahead to his conclusion. Um, interestingly enough, about a year ago, I was listening to Rush Limbaugh, where uh, he was getting into a conversation with a caller, and he, had, he was precisely on that issue, the issue of climate change. And uh, they were making precisely this point, that they believed that oil was put on this earth for us to use by God, and it wouldn't make any sense uh, for, for God to give us this gift if it was going to basically destroy us, uh, destroy us uh, later on down the line. So I play this because it reminded me of a movie that I saw recently. It's called Agora, and it was about ancient uh, Alexandria in Egypt around the year 300, between 300 and 400 or so. And they believed, as, as you would rightly imagine, that the heavens are perfect because God created them and he would only create something perfect. So heavens are perfect, and they knew that of all the shapes in the world, the circle is the most perfect shape. And so they believe, therefore, that the planets must go in circles because how could the planets do anything other than you know trace a path that was perfect in the heavens and so you know there's a little bit of confusion about whether the planets went around the sun or around the earth and you know with the sun going around the earth as well but you know what they what they couldn't figure out you know whichever uh, idea you went with going around the sun or around the earth what they actually saw in the heavens didn't comport with the idea of the planets going in circles. So the bodies in the sky that were planets, they move a whole lot more than stars do. And and then not only do they move, but they don't move in the way that they would if they were going in a circle. And so they were just racking their brains and they couldn't figure it out. And they, they referred to the, the planets as wanderers because they they seemed to just kind of move freely about compared to their idea of them going in a circle. And so they, you know, they couldn't conceive of a world in which planets could orbit in ellipses, which is what they actually do. And so, you know, even the, the very intelligent female astronomer Hypatia, uh, inventor of the astrolabe and, and, you know, one of the greatest thinkers of her time, had difficulty figuring this out because of this blind spot of these sort of ancient religious beliefs about perfection of the heavens and circles and so on. And, you know, and so, you know, eventually in the movie, at least, she figures it out. She's like, oh, you know, it's probably, uh, you know, it's probably ellipses. And it was hundreds of years later until other people figured out that she was right. Uh, but, you know, but what happened to her and all of her work? 
while followers of a relatively new religion called Christianity stormed the city and killed her for practicing witchcraft. So take that information and do with it or interpret it as you will. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. If you're not already subscribed to the show, please do that through iTunes or the RSS feed or get one of the smartphone apps. People love Stitcher, but there's also a Best of the Left app made specifically for iPhone and Android made specifically for the show. Uh, thanks also and especially to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained Stories and wonder what we're missing. We can't see past our sad stories and forget how to listen. We can't see past our sad stories and wonder what.